My name is Father Thomas Joseph White, and I am the director of the Thomistic Institute here at the Angelicum in Rome. And on behalf of our rector and faculty of our university, we're honored to host this one-day conference in celebration of the Catholic sanctity and wonderful intellectual insight of John Henry Newman, a conference entitled Newman the Prophet, the Saint for Our Times. And we're honored to have with us today many scholars and church leaders from a variety of backgrounds, nationalities, and disciplines to help us think through the riches and implications of Newman's intellectual heritage. John Henry Newman was a saint, but also a theological writer of the highest order, a person whose knowledge of the traditions of the church led him to Catholicism, and who also sought to be in his own time, indeed in the midst of our own modern era, a witness to the light of the faith. John Henry Newman famously admired Athanasius, who he called a pillar of fire, burning in the night, leading the church through the midst of the crisis of ancient Arianism. Newman perhaps himself is just such a pillar of light for our own age, where our church is often beleaguered by the questions of our own secular contemporaries who ask us to render an account of our hope. Newman saw in the history of church doctrine not a gathering of incoherent opinions, but a living development of thought that was adaptable, but also continuously coherent and unbreakable, organic in its development and radiant in its truth. Newman depicted this Catholic tradition in his own life of witness as a contemplative oratorian priest and preacher, praying and writing in the midst of the modern age the age of liberalism, as he called it, where he wrote for his contemporaries who did not know God out of priestly love so as to make them aware of the mystery of God. And we are very honored today to have so many members of the Oratorian family here with us who also embody that charism. We all sense today the vibrant actuality of Newman's thought and his witness to the truth of Catholicism, a faith that is ever ancient, ever new. It is with joy and celebration, then, that we embark on this afternoon of reflection dedicated to the greatness of his thought. Please help me welcome George Wyman. Thank you very much, uh, Father Thomas Joseph. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to begin by thanking Father White and the Thomistic Institute for the invitation to open this conference with some personal reflections on John Henry Newman and his, his meaning for today. It's a great pleasure to share this occasion, this great occasion, especially for the church in the Anglosphere, as one of our noblest <coughs> sons is raised to the glory of the altars with so many old friends who have gathered here in Rome for his canonization. In uh, February 2003, the Fathers of the Birmingham Oratory honored me with an invitation to deliver at the musical oratory marking Cardinal Newman's 202nd birthday. It was a marvelous evening of music and intellectual reflection, wine and fellowship, 
But what remains most firmly in my memory was the half hour I had spent earlier that day in Cardinal Newman's rooms, which had been left the way they were at his death. I sat in his chair before the fireplace, fingered the small brandy glasses from which he warmed himself of a chill evening, held the Latin breveries with which he had prayed even before entering into full communion with the church. On one wall, there was a yellowed but still readable map from the Times of London on which Newman had followed the path down the Nile of General Kitchener's expedition to relieve the siege of Khartoum and rescue General Charles Gordon. And I remembered that Gordon, who was of course murdered by the forces of the Mahdi before Kitchener's troops arrived, had prepared for death by reading Newman's poem, The Dream of Gerontius. Inside the old upright wardrobe was the Galera, the ceremonial red hat bestowed on Newman by Pope Leo XIII. And pinned around the altar were numerous brief notes in Newman's own hand or sent to him by others for small pictures reminding him of those for whom he had promised to pray. The next day, I was given leave to ramble through Newman's horseshoe-shaped two-tiered library, and it's not easy to convey the emotion I felt when I lifted off the shelf a large folio volume of the opera Omnia of Pope St. Gregory the Great and read on the flyleaf the inscription to my dear friend J.H. Newman E. Pusey. But it was while sitting in Newman's room in his chair that the thought occurred, was his a life of change or continuity? When Newman died in 1890, Lord Rosebery, who would become Prime Minister of Great Britain four years later, came to the Birmingham Oratory Church to pay his respects. Rosebery was the last of a type, the last of the great liberal grandees, a man of whom Churchill's secretary, John Colville, once wrote, he was likely to have had a copy of Das Kapital in his library, but in a special edition with a calfskin binding. In any event, after contemplating Newman laid out before the altar of the Oratory Church, Rosebery wrote in his diary, this was the end of the young Calvinist, the Oxford Don, the austere vicar of St. Mary's. It seemed as if a whole cycle of human thought and life was concentrated in that august repose. That was my overwhelming thought 
kindly light had led and guided Newman to this strange, brilliant end. But was there something really strange about Newman's destiny and the life in which he fulfilled it? However dramatic the changes in his life seemed on the surface of history, was there not far more continuity than change when Newman's life was read and is read in its true spiritual depth? It was, after all, Newman who, in the Meditations on Christian Doctrine, insisted of God that he knows what he is about. It was, after all, Newman who demanded of himself and held himself to this challenging commitment, I shall be a preacher of truth. So while there was certainly change over the long course of Newman's contentious life, there was also a genuine, deep-running, and determinative continuity. That was the continuity of the radically converted Christian who, in his case, having passed through adolescent skepticism, committed himself wholly and entirely to Jesus Christ, the answer to the question that is every human life, and to the church that is Christ's mystical body in the world. And amidst that continuity of faith, there was a continuity of conviction and a continuity in reading the signs of the times. It was a conviction that the faith in modernity was under assault from a particularly dangerous enemy, dangerous because it appealed modern humanity's fascination with itself and modern humanity's constant temptation to confuse tolerance with indifference to the truth of things. That conviction was most memorably expressed, it seems to me, in the famous Bilietto speech, which Newman delivered on May 12, 1879, on receipt of the official notification, the biglietto or ticket, of his enrollment in the Sacred College of Cardinals. And on that occasion, after some preliminary words of thanks to Pope Leo XIII, Newman had this to say about himself, his times, and our times. He said, in the course, in a long course of years, I have made many mistakes. But what I trust that I may claim all through what I have written is this, an honest intention, an absence of private ends, a temper of obedience, a willingness to be corrected, a dread of error, a desire to serve Holy Church, and through divine mercy, a fair measure of success. And I rejoice to say, to one great mischief, I have from the Pope first opposed myself, 
For 30, 40, 50 years, I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more than now. Liberalism in religion, continued, is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste. Not an objective fact, not miraculous, and it is the right of each individual to make it say just what strikes his fancy. Words worth pondering then and now. Throughout his life, Newman, the man of change and development amidst continuity, was guided by the promptings of his conscience, which he took to be the voice of God, speaking to us through what he termed the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Many of you will, of course, be aware of the impact that Newman's writings on conscience had on the young Joseph Ratzinger in the aftermath of the Second World War. Perhaps not so well known, however, is the impact that Newman's sermons on conscience had on the young Germans of the anti-Nazi White Rose Movement, including the most famous member of that resistance organization, Sophie Scholl, who was beheaded for treason in 1943. When Sophie Scholl's boyfriend, Fritz Hartnagel, was sent by the Wehrmacht to the Russian front in 1942, Sophie gave him two volumes of Newman's sermons. Fritz later wrote, we know by whom we are created and that we stand in a relationship of moral obligation to our creator. Conscience gives us the capacity to distinguish between good and evil. Words, British author Paul Shrimpton observed, that were taken almost verbatim from a famous sermon of Newman's called The Testimony of Conscience. On the witness stand before the odious Judge Roland Freisler in the notorious Nazi People's Court in Munich, 21-year-old Sophie Scholl testified that it was her conscience and her Christian conviction that had led her to nonviolent resistance against Hitler and his gangsters. That Christian resistance was formed in part by a serious intellectual and spiritual encounter with the man we shall know from tomorrow as Saint John Henry Newman. There's a lot of talk in the 21st century church about conscience, and Newman is invoked by many prominent personalities in those debates. So it might be useful for all concerned ponder Newman's influence on these contemporary martyrs.
What did the members of the White Rose learn from Newman about conscience? They learned that conscience could not be ignored or manipulated. They learned that the voice of God speaking through our consciences sets before us what is life-giving and what is death-dealing. They learned that conscience can be stern, but that in submitting to the truths it conveys, we are liberated in the deepest meaning of human freedom. They learned that obedience to conscience makes us courageous, and that to strive to live an ideal with the help of grace is to live a truly noble life with an undivided heart. These themes, too, are of obvious significance for the church today. The continuity of the radically converted Christian disciple was also evident in Newman's work on the development of doctrine. Marks of a true development of doctrine that Newman identified were, I suggest, themselves a development of the work of St. Vincent of Lorraine, which many of us read in the Divine Office yesterday. As you will remember from that reading, Vincent, anticipating Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine by 1,400 years, and Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, John XXIII's opening address to the Second Vatican Council by 1,500 years, he's a perspicacious fellow, that Vincent of Lorraine, insisted that, quote, in the Church of Christ, must truly be a development of the faith, not an alteration of the faith. Development means that each thing expands to be itself, while alteration means that a thing is changed from one thing to another. The understanding, knowledge, and wisdom of the whole church ought then to make great and vigorous progress with the passing of the ages and the centuries but only along its own line of development, that is, with the same doctrine, the same meaning, and the same import. Words that many of you will remember as taken by St. John the 23rd, 1500 years later. So development, not what we call today paradigm shifts, was what characterized Newman's path in following the kindly light. It was what characterized Newman's theological concept of how the church's self-understanding deepens and, and expands over time. And we see that theology vindicated in the Second Vatican Council in its teaching on the nature of the church, on divine revelation, on the office of bishop, and on religious freedom and the modern state. The great continuity of Newman's life, as I've suggested here several times already, was his radical discipleship. That discipleship, that deep, life-transforming conversion to Christ, informed a brilliant and subtle mind and shaped a most glorious pen. And I think in his case, we can indeed say pen. It was a profound that Newman could say and mean 
1,000 questions do not amount to a doubt. And that discipleship was also at the core of Newman's life as a churchman. Churchmanship is not a term in common use today. That's a shame. For the word suggests qualities of character that are always needed in the mystical body of Christ, but especially needed in times of cultural turmoil and consequent ecclesiastical turbulence. And Newman, I suggest, was never better displayed than in his work before, during, and after the First Vatican Council. As everyone here surely knows, Newman believed in the infallibility of the Bishop of Rome under certain well-defined circumstances. He also judged that a dogmatic definition of that infallibility at the end of the seventh decade of the 19th century was imprudent, or as the language of the day had it, inopportune. And he resisted with his usual literary vigor the attempts by some to give papal infallibility so broad a definition as to turn the pope into a kind of oracle on virtually every imaginable question of ecclesiastical and public life. Yet, when Vatican I adopted a carefully crafted definition of the nature and range of papal infallibility, Newman not only accepted it in his own mind, but defended it in public against the deprecations of the former Prime Minister, William Ewart Gladstone, in his famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk, in a defense of the integrity of Catholic faith, that in England only Newman could have successfully made. This was churchmanship of the very highest caliber, and it is a quality of character from which every Catholic can learn today. Finally, there is a deep continuity to be found in Newman's life in his courage. Another quality of mind, heart, and soul, another virtue that is much needed in Catholicism today. I will, of course, defer to great Newman biographers like Father Ian Carr on this point, but it does seem to me that Newman's displays of courage throughout his life, in his transition from youthful skepticism to evangelical belief, his transition from evangelicalism to the Newman of the Tracts for the Times and the Oxford Movement, his reception into full communion with the Catholic Church, his acceptance of the presidency of a nascent Catholic university in Ireland, his debate with Charles Kingsley, and his aforementioned work during and after Vatican I, that courage did not come to him easily. His was a more gentle spirit than the polemicists of his time, and one can easily imagine that he would have much preferred to be left to his scholarship and his life of prayer rather than being constantly called into the lists of controversy. But when those 
calls came, this consummate churchman courageously answered them, spoke the truth, even when that meant speaking truth to power, and in doing so, inspired others to do the same. Newman's courage was another manifestation of his profound Christian faith. And in his courage, he lived out what he had espoused to others in that meditation on Christian doctrine when he wrote in speaking of God, therefore, I shall trust him. If I am in perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. My perplexity may be a necessary cause of some great end, which is quite beyond us. He does nothing in vain. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide the future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. We honor the memory of John Henry Newman, this newest of God's saints, by imitating that courage and the conviction that underwrote it. Thank you, Sir Laudato Jesuit.